So uh, I was at a conference. Some of you were in there as well. Um, and uh, we were listening to uh, an instructor give some instructions. And uh, he came across, he said, you know, when you're, I uh, was, you know, doing some mission stuff. And so he said, hey, when you're out in other countries, you're a visitor. So you need to blend in well. Now, many of you may be familiar with an animal that does a really good job of blending in. Do you know what they call that animal? It starts with the CH. Chameleon, right? Yeah, chameleon. They blend in really well. And so we were instructed, hey, when you're overseas and you're on mission, you should blend in. You should be like a chameleon. However, the instructor did not say chameleon. The instructor uh, pronunciated based on the phonetics of the word, and so he called it a shamillion, to which one of our people that were with us raised their hand and said, not, uh, excuse me, that is chameleon. They said, could you repeat that? To which he did, and he said, shamillion, again. So for the last several years, we've, you know, those of us that were there have made jokes about the chameleon, and how that's not how you say it, but we said, so it became a part of my psyche, right? So I'm thinking that must, my brain began to rewire into believing that you pronounced chameleon as chameleon. So fast forward, this is back when we were at the barn, and there were some visitors at the barn, and so we were talking, and some new people that I'd met, and uh, we were talking about uh, foster care. And we were talking about how sometimes foster children, unfortunately I remember this very vividly, uh, but how foster children uh, oftentimes blend in very well because, you know, their environment changes often. So they learn and adapt to blend in very well. And I said to the person that I just met, you know, hey, I'm a pastor at the church, person I've just met. And I said, yeah, it's just like a chameleon. They blend in well. And then I remember thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> he must think I am the biggest uneducated idiot this side of the planet, you know. So then I'm thinking the whole time, how can I recover from that? I have to find a way to say the word again and say it correctly. And then I'm like, wait a minute. So I'm having this internal dialogue. You can't say it again because you said it wrong the first time. You just got to let this ride. You know, and so there's times in our life where we need to say the right thing. It's really important that we say the right thing. We would all agree that there is nothing more valuable than knowing how to say the right thing, right? And just, I don't want to mess you up. So as we leave this conversation, it is chameleon, right? Don't go out and make yourself look stupid by saying the other word. I don't want you to remember, okay? So, yeah, so it's important that we know how to say the right thing. And so, as Pastor Tony's unpacked the last couple of weeks, uh, Paul is writing this letter. And he's writing this letter to Philemon for him uh, to receive Onesimus, right? To receive him back. And so, there's been this dissension, uh, according to some of the latter verses, that uh, here's the slave. And uh, if you've not been with us, and so I'm just reviewing here, he, uh, they had some disagreement. He ran away, he ran into Paul. Uh, in Rome, he gets saved. Paul is sending a letter back to the church at Colossae. Apparently, they are meeting in uh, Philemon's uh, house, and apparently he has wealth, he has means. And so 
he is uh, sending this letter, and in the letter he sends, he also sends this letter to them uh, to discuss these, this mending. And so Paul has to be very specific to Philemon uh, that he would say the right thing, right? It's very important that he would do that. Now there's a catalyst, and that's what we're really going to focus on tonight. There's a catalyst that drove Paul's motives and it drove Paul's actions, and it is what Paul is counting on that will drive uh, Philemon's actions, okay? So when we're in these situations, it's very important, again, that we know how to say the right thing. Here's when this gets the most difficult, in conflict, right? How many times have you been in a situation of conflict, and then you say, man, I wish I would have said this, or, oh, man, I wish I would have done that, right? I can testify that that's certainly true for me, that we, we, we look back and we say, I should have said this, or I should have said that. And so in conflict, when the temperature rises, oftentimes we abandon any, you know, training or any, you know, infiltration or any influence that we may have had, and we say the wrong things or we do the wrong things. And conflict often causes us to up the probability that we're going to do the wrong thing. And so it's very important here, as Paul is writing this letter, that he would say the right thing at the right time. You see, most people don't think very clearly when they are in a tense situation. Uh, now, you know, I often look back on my conversations in the heat of the moment. I, I feel like I can think very clearly. So when stress goes up, I tend to focus in very well. Now, all of us would agree, though, that we could all use some instruction on how to say the right thing, how to say it the right way. You know, saying the right thing at the wrong time, not helpful, right? So we need to say the right thing, but we need to uh, say it the right way the way that it will be received, and we need to say it at the right time. You know, we may say the right thing, but we may say it the wrong way. You know, some personalities are different, and so we want to make sure that we're careful about how we say that. And so this is a great instructive letter on how we can resolve conflict in a manner that honors God. And so I'm going to talk primarily tonight on the catalyst that will do that. I was back and forth about, you know, what this looks like. Uh, but I, I feel like it's more important tonight that if we get the why correct, I don't need to give you the practical what's. You're going to figure that out because the why is the same. It needs to be the same for all of us. It certainly was the same in this situation. And that why will drive the step-by-step. So if you're in conflict and you were hoping tonight that I was going to give you a step-by-step of what to say and how to say it, I'm not. So let me just go ahead and get that out of the way. What I am going to focus on tonight is the catalyst behind why we say and how we say the right things at the right time. So Paul's about to have this discussion about the conflict that exists between uh, Philemon and uh, the conflict between him and Onesimus. All right, so let's pick up in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, so uh, you know, there's always this uh, Pauline apostleship and this Pauline uh, authorship. Did Paul write the letter? Yes, he wrote the letter. Uh, Paul says, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. 
I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So Paul's in prison in Rome. This is one of the letters that he wrote while he's there. Formerly, Paul writes, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So apparently uh, Onesimus has become very endearing to Paul. He says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a servant. Uh, more than a bondservant. Pastor Tony talked about this in week one. So if you missed this part, uh, go back and listen to week one on the website. He says he's not a servant anymore. He's a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so Paul writes this letter and he says, hey, look, y'all have had this disagreement. Uh, he has become a believer. And because of the disagreement that you had, I feel that the right thing to do is that I would send him back to you and that you guys would make amends. Now, in the process of doing that, he may be available for you, for you forever. That's what he says. And so that's the situation that Paul is in, writing this letter. Now, Paul's desire... Paul's desire is that uh, Philemon would respond out of desire, not out of compulsion. And that's the point that I was making earlier is, you know, if, if we just show up to church and we read our Bible at home and, and, and we, we are instructed by the Bible and we're only looking for a four-step plan or you just do this and you'll be fine, we're not ever going to get to where God wants us to be. Okay, what we have to do is we have to get to a point to where we desire to do the right thing, right? I can tell you how to, what to do, but you need as a believer, I need as a believer to be compelled, right, to do the right thing. I need to have uh, that, uh, that, com that compulsion should come from desire. It shouldn't come from intellect. Right? And so as I'm reading God's Word, I should allow God's Word to saturate my life in so much that as I do go out into the world, that I would desire to do the things that are from God's Word. Not that I would be compelled to imitate you because I can be more like you, but that I would desire to imitate Jesus, right? That's where the desire comes from. And so Paul is his desire, and he says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent, verse 14, in order that your goodness would be what? That it might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. So he says, Philemon, here's what I want you to do. My desire for you is that you'll do the right thing. Now, you'll notice he implies a lot in these verses. But he doesn't say, say this, do this. Be at this place, right? He doesn't say any of that. What is he doing? He's doing what I hope to accomplish in the message tonight is that we would get to the point to say, oh, well, that is what my desire should be. That is what ought to be the compelling reason behind why I do what I do. You see, Paul is expecting Philemon to respond from a heart that is changed by the gospel, not from a mind that is persuaded by Paul. There's a lot of compelling people in the world, a lot of motivating speakers, right? 
uh, there are TED Talks of people that are experts in their field of study that would compel you to believe or to understand certain topics and subjects. That will not get you to where God wants you to be. There has to be a change in your heart in order for you to become who God wants you to be. It is not an activity in which we'll accomplish that. It is a transformation that happens inside of you that results in what happens outside of you, right? And so anytime we come to church and we try to approach God's Word from an intellectual perspective, you will not accomplish what God desires for you. You will not. Now, I know that Paul was a very intelligent man, and I am a lifelong learner. I want to continue to learn. But intellect will not get me to where God wants me to be. And Paul understands this with Philemon. And so what he says is, look, I'm trying to persuade you from your heart, not from your mind. So logic is not going to get you there. You see, Paul can lay out all the reasons why uh, Philemon needs to forgive Onesimus. And he can give him the facts. And he can say, well, you know, here's this happened. And here's what happened here. And here's what Onesimus said. And so on and so forth. But logic is not going to get them to that point. It is only going to be God changing his heart that will get him to that point. And it's the same for you and me. You know, many people, uh, you know, many apologists, uh, Lee Strobel, uh, Josh McDowell, some of the most popular ones um, that have come to belief and faith in Jesus Christ, came the opposite way. In other words, they said, Jesus is not real, and I'm going to prove it. And in their journey to prove that Jesus, well, Jesus is not real, they discovered what? That Jesus is, in fact, real. And so God changed their heart in that process. Logic often doesn't apply to your faith. Logic often doesn't apply to my faith. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe and have not yet seen, right? And who did he tell that? To Thomas who says, hey, I'm not going to believe unless I see the nail-scarred hands, unless I see his side. And Jesus said, well, blessed are those who believe and have not yet seen. Paul says uh, that the things that we see are temporary, right? And the things that we don't see are eternal, and so logic says, hey, this whole believe in Jesus Christ and you have eternal life doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that God would forgive me simply based on me receiving what Jesus did on the cross, right? Logic doesn't believe in saying, hey, there's no way this problem can be solved. There's no way Philemon can forgive Onesimus. Do you know what he did? Logic says you can't do it. Faith says you can Right? The gospel says it's possible. So when you try to apply logic to your faith, you will not get to where God wants you to be. So as Philemon is looking at this and he's reading this letter, and in his heart, if he is thinking, this doesn't make any sense, he's probably on track. For you, if God is calling you to do something, to forgive a neighbor, to have a conversation, to be a part of something that God is doing, any activity, mission, whatever that may be, oftentimes it does not make sense. Do not base your fellowship of faith on logic. I should have wrote that in the, in the handout. Do not base your fellowship of faith on logic. It's often not going to make sense. Often we approach situations from the perspective of logic or from what makes sense, instead of, which we are going to make the case for tonight, filtering everything through the lens of the gospel. 
It doesn't make sense for Philemon to accept Onesimus back, and it doesn't make sense for Onesimus to go back. Put yourself in his shoes. Are you going back? As Pastor Tony talked about last week, it's like 1,500 miles away. Number one, that's a long way, even today. Number two, number two, why would I go back? I was a slave. I'm no longer a slave. I'm in Rome. I fit in. There's a bunch of people here. Now I've just met Jesus, right? I've, I've, through the encounter that he had with Paul, he had an encounter with Jesus. He placed his faith in Jesus. He began to follow Jesus. And so why would he go back? You see, logically, it doesn't make any sense. And so what Paul is doing is instead of addressing the situation through logic, Paul is addressing the situation from the perspective of the gospel. You see, oftentimes you would say, well, you know, I got these job opportunities and the lesser paying job is what I feel God is calling me to do. And you would say, that doesn't make sense. You're right. In the world's eyes, it doesn't make sense. But what if God is filtering your opportunities not through the finance, but through your faith, through the gospel, right? So oftentimes we make decisions based on what makes sense. Paul believes that the gospel, the lens of the gospel of which he is looking through, he believes that not only is the gospel capable of repairing damaged relationships that we have with God, right? That there's this, uh, according to Romans 5, that there's this sin problem that we have and that we've been separated from God. <coughs> we are no longer at peace with God. Paul believes that that same faith that damaged our relationship, that the gospel that repaired it is the same power to change the broken relationships that we have with one another. How is it that you can believe as a follower of Jesus that God can repair the relationship that you damaged between you and him and yet he can't repair the relationship that you have between you and a fellow believer or a fellow human, right? That doesn't make any sense. That we would say, God, you're capable of repairing your relationship with me, but not my relationship with others. So in other words, as Paul is talking about this, we have to address the damaged relationships around us in the same way that we approach the gospel. In the same way that we approach the gospel. That we have to approach it in a sense that if God forgave us while we were sinners that we can, in fact, then in turn forgive those who we are in conflict with, even if they're not asking for forgiveness, right? That Here's what Paul is telling Onesimus. Hey, you need to forgive uh, Philemon, and, and you haven't even gone back yet. Again, how do you convince someone to go 1,500 miles back to their slave owner, their master, in already forgiving him, in hope and anticipation that you would be forgiven. You have to forgive first, right? That's the only way you're going back. So we have to address that from the gospel's perspective. But as long as we leave God out of the situation, we can expect to stay stuck in conflict. Now, I say this sensitively, and I don't say it specifically. So if this is your situation, it's not because I know about it. But so many people live stuck in conflict oftentimes for most of their life. That they've got relationships that have been damaged years ago and they're sticking to that damage. 
that they're allowing that damage to continue to exist in that relationship with no attempt whatsoever to resolve that. Now, every conflict is not able to be resolved, and I'm not saying that it is. But what I am saying is that if you have an opportunity to be a part of resolving conflict, sometimes you have to make the first move. So if you've got a relationship in your life that has been in conflict for a long time, you know what you need to do? You need to try to resolve that. You need to go to God and you, you need to ask for opportunities. I had a situation, uh, this was a few years ago, and there was uh, some potential perceived conflict, at least from my side. And I said, God, if you, if you want me to have a conversation with this person, then create the opportunity. Right? I'm praying, God, I want to do it. But, you know, I'm kind of backdooring it. Um, God, if you would make it impossible, you know, here's this impossible situation that I want you to conjure up. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek that. But so I said, God, if you want me to do it, create the situation. Well, guess what God did? The very next day, the very next day, I'm at somewhere that we shouldn't be at the same place together, and they show up. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I was not prepared for this conversation day, today. You know, but that's how God works, right? And so uh, that person came and we had a conversation and it went really good. And we were able to clear up some stuff. And, you know, I, I just felt there was some animosity and I wanted to, you know, clear it up. Uh, but if you have that conflict in your life, that's the first thing you need to do is you need to pray, God, I, I want to resolve this. I want to be at peace with them just like I want to be at peace with you. And so that's, that's uh, not part of the message, but it is something I think would be helpful for you. So as long as we leave God out, we're going to be stuck. And so if you've been stuck, you've left God out. And so you've got to bring God back into the situation. We cannot cling to the transforming nature of the gospel to change our eternity and not believe that that same power can't transform the present. You say, oh, well, you don't know what they did. Well, I don't need to know what they did. You, you don't know what happened. You know how long it's been since we've spoken. You know how long that argument's been. Well, that should make it a little easier to resolve, right? Look, and here's what I would suggest. Again, uh, this is not part of the message, but here's what I would suggest to you. When you have that conversation, here's what I would do if I were you. I would call, contact that person, and I would say, can we have a conversation? And they're probably, if you're in conflict, not willing to meet. And so maybe that conversation's over the phone. If it can be face-to-face, it's probably better. But just real quickly here, here's what I would say. I would say, um, I know a lot of things have happened in the past that both of us wish were different. But here's what I would ask for us moving forward. Can we resolve this conflict and move forward together? Can we both agree that it's better off that we be at peace together? Right? I'm not asking you to go and hash up old differences and re-argue about everything, about who's right or wrong. What I'm asking you to do is to be at peace so that you can move forward in your life outside of this conflict. You don't have to go into this conflict resolution scenario and we're going to spend an hour digging it up and hashing it out and fighting it out and then we can move on. No, you just need to address, hey, we had a disagreement. And we both would agree that we wish things were different. So can we both agree that we want to move on from this and that we can forgive each other and resolve to move forward together? That's a simple way to have that conversation. And it absolves fault. So you're not saying you did me wrong, but I forgive you. That's not going to work. So it's just, hey, we want to move forward together. And so can we both agree just to put this behind us? A simple way to do it. 
And so I want to give you some ways that oftentimes we don't do that, okay? I want to talk to you about some ways that we are not gospel-centric. Now, this is, you know, one of the only lists that we're going to talk about tonight, but this is so helpful, okay? So when we talk about being gospel-centric, Paul is writing this letter uh, to Philemon, and he's saying, look, I want your heart to be centered on the gospel because I know if your heart is centered on the gospel, you're going to do the right thing. That's what he's anticipating to do. But so oftentimes, we are not gospel-centered. We're logic-centered, or we're self-centered, or we're situationally-centered, but we're not centered on the gospel. So here's a couple of ways, some signs, that you are not focused on the gospel. Number one, the gospel doesn't interest you. The gospel doesn't interest you. In other words, your life is not centered around what God is doing in your life. The gospel is not centered around what God is doing in your life. And so if the gospel doesn't interest you, if it is, you know, secondary or third or fourth, you know, on down in your life, well, then there's a, re- there's a key indicator right there that you are not centered on the gospel. It is not of interest to you. Number two is that you take most things personal. Now, I mean, I know a lot, most of you in the room, and, you know, some people take things really personal, right? Paul says the things that you see are temporary, the things that you don't see are eternal. Remember, we talked about that. And so oftentimes when we have these situations of conflict, we take it very personal. We say, you hurt my feelings, or you said something you shouldn't have said. And so if you take most things personal, you are not allowing the gospel to saturate your life. You are allowing you to saturate your life. So to be gospel-focused, you have to take you out of the equation. Number three, you often worry about what others think. So in other words, you make decisions not based on what God has called you to do, but based on how others will respond to what you do. This is a key indicator. So if any of these are you, well, this is a key indicator that you need to recenter your life on the gospel. Number four, you act like inconveniences or tragedies in your life. Man, is that not a big one, right? That any hiccup in your life, anything that goes wrong, you know, it's worst case scenario. That it's this tragedy. Oh, well, I was late and, you know, it's everybody else's fault. Or, you know, I've got a leak in my roof and, you know, everything bad always happens in my life. No. Everybody has situations in their life. Every circumstance that's bad in your life, you know, some are really bad, but most of them are not tragedies. So if you have an inconvenience, it's not that your life is over or that everything, that you always have bad luck. That is an indicator that you are not focused on the gospel. Number five, you are impatient. Again, another big one. Sometimes God answers your prayer immediately. Like when I prayed for conflict resolution and I got it within 24 hours. Right? I was hoping for, you know, 24 months. But that's not what happened. So oftentimes we want God to move when we want God to move. And then we don't want God to move when we don't want God to move. Who's in control here? Right? And so when we're centered on the gospel, we are patient. Number six, the fruit of the Spirit is not visible in your life. That's an obvious one. If you're not focused on the gospel, you are not producing gospel fruit. That's very simple. Number seven, you are not drawn to the Word of God. Is it true in your life that God's Word is a light into your feet, a lamp to your feet, and a light into your path? Is that true? Is it true that your Word, 
God's word you've hidden in your heart so you would not sin against God? Is that true in your life? We have so, you know, I don't know if it's the electronic versions of the Bible or whatever. We have so gotten away from passion for the Word of God. And that's a key indicator. What does it mean to you when you spend time in God's Word? Is that a priority in your life? Now, as a church, corporately, we've done everything that we could possibly do uh, to, to make that a case in your life. Right, Every opportunity through D groups, through intentional Bible study, we've tried to do everything that we can do in order for that to be a priority in your life. But guess what? I can't show up to your house every day at 5.30 a.m. and say, hey, wake up. You need to spend some time with God. Right? You've got to have that. That's got to be a desire, just like with Philemon here, that it's got to be a desire in your life that you are drawn to the Word of God. Now, is that something you conjure up? No. More Jesus goes in, more Jesus comes out. More garbage goes in, more garbage comes out, right? So drawn to the Word of God. Number eight, it's hard for you to forgive. If you know how much you've been forgiven, which leads to number nine, but if you know how much you've been forgiven, you're going to forgive. What did Jesus say? He who who is forgiven much forgives much, right? So if if we are uh, forgiven, well, it's easier for us to forgive, And then number nine, which is very similar, is that you think you're not the worst sinner you know. That's a key indicator. What do you think about your own sin? Right? I mean, let's be honest. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then every one of you has sin. Every one of us has sin. And so in your own life, when you measure, you know, Pastor Tony talked about comparison. When you measure your sin, which is wrong and you shouldn't do, but we often do. Well, you know, I'm bad, but hey, not as bad as Paul is, right? Hey, I'm bad, but Mark is way worse. You know, and so what we began to think is, hey, well, I'm, I'm not the worst sinner I know. What did Paul say? He said he was the what? Chief of sinners. Paul understood that his heart was depraved, that his heart was bent towards sin. And when your heart is bent towards sin, the only thing that can rescue you is the gospel. It is not logic. It's not reason. You have to have the Word of God in order to have the forgiveness of God so that you would recognize the fact that you are a sinner separated from God, right? And so oftentimes in our life, we so move towards a logic-centered reality opposed to a gospel-centered reality. And so what Paul is trying to do is he is trying to uh, get Philemon to the point to where he understands that it is the gospel that he should be focused on, and that Paul believes that it will be the gospel that motivates Philemon to forgive Onesimus. That is a hard sentence to say, right? Paul is implying and expecting the gospel that Philemon declares will drive his actions. And so here's what Paul knows. Here's what you know about the gospel. Number one, Paul knows that the gospel declares and requires to do what? To love your enemies. That's what the gospel declares. Now, is that easy to do? No, of course it's not. But Paul knows that, uh, that as believers that we're commanded to love our enemies. And so even though you and I were God's enemy, Jesus died to reconcile us to God, right? That we were at enmity with God. And so we can imitate what Jesus has done by showing the same kind of undeserved compassion and sacrificial love to those 
who have wronged us. Now, is that easy to do? No. But Paul understood the gospel calls us to live a life that loves our enemies. What else did Paul understand? We understand that the enemies that he came to love were the same people that came to love him. Think about what Paul did. What was his history? He was a Christian killer, right? He would hunt people down that believed in Jesus, and he would kill them. Imagine how the families of those people felt about Paul. And yet, what happened to Paul? He had this Damascus Road experience. He had a confrontation with the risen Lord, and his life radically changed. And so Paul began to love the people in which he used to hate. Now, what happened to the people that he affected? Well, they began to love Paul. How do we know that? Because he was welcomed, reluctantly all the, all the more, but he was welcomed into the faith of the brotherhood, right? They welcomed him in. We'll talk about that in a minute. They had a common purpose, and that common purpose was the gospel. You see, the reason that people don't get along is because they don't have a common purpose. They have their purpose. It's true. It's true. What are you arguing about? Because you didn't get your way. But if your way is the same as my way, we're not going to argue, right? That we would have the same purpose, and that purpose being the gospel, then it's very easy for us to get along. And then the other thing that Paul believed about the gospel is that you can take initiative in resolving conflict. You were still a sinner when Jesus died for you, Romans 5, 8, right? And so we can make the first move to seek reconciliation regardless of who the offender was. That's what I just said earlier. You can say, hey, look, we both will agree that the things that happened we wish were different. But can we agree to move forward and put this behind us? And so I want to talk to you just a couple things tonight about the gospel. First thing is, the gospel changes how we see things. The gospel changes how we see things. If you base your actions on your logic or your ideas, I've said this a lot here lately, I don't have anything good to say. I don't. I don't need you to be more like me. I don't need you to follow me. I don't need you to rely on me. That, that is not a desire of my heart. Now, you know, in the providence of God, God made me a pastor, and it's part of what I do. But I don't desire that. I desire, my desire for me is that I can spend as much time with Jesus and be as much like Jesus as possible. And that is the same desire I have for you as one of your pastors, is that you would look to Jesus. I'm not your mediator. Jesus is your mediator. Maybe pastors aren't supposed to say that. I'm just telling you how I feel. That Jesus is your mediator. You need to go to God. You see, when you go to God, it changes the way that you see things. I can give you my opinion from experience, and I've got a lot of samplings, right? But here's what's going to change your situation. God is going to change your situation. I'd be more than happy to have a conversation with you about whatever problems you're having, and I'll do my very best to help you solve those problems. But Jesus is the only one who has the ultimate authority and power to make those changes in your life. You see, the gospel changes how we see things. After I was born again, I got saved in 1998. After I got saved, I began to see things differently. All right, I began to see things through the lens of the gospel. Now, it wasn't immediate for me. I mean, there's been ebbs and flows in my walk with the Lord where God has matured me, and then there's times where I fell back, and then God matured me, and God shaped me and used circumstances and people and situations to help me be who He wants me to be. But it also changed the way I see things. Right? It changed the way I see things. The gospel 
had made a radical change in Paul's life. It had completely, does this define you? It had completely redirected his thoughts. It had completely changed his desires. It had completely changed his career. Everything about Paul centered on the gospel. He gave his life to the gospel. Sounds radical, doesn't it? You see, he made no decisions apart from the gospel. And Onesimus encountered this radical faith that Paul has in the gospel. And guess what happened to Onesimus? He became radically captivated by the very same Jesus that Paul was following. You see, when you see the God, when the gospel changes the way you see things, it changes the way people see you. And it changes the way you see other people. You see, if you're radically living out the gospel in your life, guess what happens? Then you are going to be, begin to be a part of the things that God is doing in and around you and through you. And you're going to see those things. But most people are so oblivious to God's activity in their life because they're so focused on their purpose opposed to the purpose of the kingdom. It happens all of the time. Tim Keller says this, a popular author and preacher. He says, all change, and this may be on your handout, I can't remember, comes from deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out the changes that understanding creates in your heart. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, and our view of the world. If that is not a definition of what happened to you at salvation, you did not get saved. You see, Paul is writing to Philemon because he wants Philemon to do the right thing for the right reason. Paul is implying to him that the koinonia, the, the, the brotherhood, the fellowship that is supposed to exist between believers, a sort of moral code, if you will, if you, uh, if, as to how believers should treat one another. Now, I deleted a lot of stuff in this section of the message. I just want to let you know before we get there. But you would expect that within the confines of the gospel, there would be more of a sense of camaraderie, a brotherhood, if you will. Wouldn't you think? Right? Wouldn't you expect that? <clears throat> that? That's what happened in Acts, isn't it? That they were meeting together daily in, in houses, and, and when anyone had a need, they would get together and they would serve that need, and people were being saved by the thousands in the book of Acts. That's what the Bible says. That their lives were radically altered, that they gave everything for the gospel. The, the uh, illustrations of the parables that Jesus gave in Matthew, what did he say? When the pearl is found, that you discover this pearl of great price, what do you do? That you sell everything that you have to go and possess that field. Isn't that what the gospel says? And yet today in our world, what do we have? We've got a lot of people who want to fill the church pews and they want to accomplish their purpose in the church, whatever that may be, instead of surrendering their lives to the lordship of Jesus and accomplishing his purpose. Look, I'm, I'm passionate about this, but I'm not angry about it, all right? I just want to let you know. I'm very passionate about this. Because when you get saved, it radically transforms the way you see things. And if your sight has not been transformed, you have not been saved. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you how it works. You see, you would expect that there'd be camaraderie in the church. But unfortunately, in a lot of situations, that is not the case. 
The reason that we have more churches per square mile in Mississippi than anywhere else in the world is because we cannot get along. This is what living outside of the common purpose of Jesus, that's what that looks like. Look around. You see, Paul is appealing here to be different, to be transformed, to be motivated by the gospel, and he's basing this on love. Ironically, Philemon's name means the loving one. Interesting, huh? And so he's asking him to do what? He's asking him to live up to his name. To live up to his name. As I thought about this, and I thought about, you know, we all just read Genesis 49 in D group. And remember in Genesis 49, what does Jacob, you know, otherwise known as Israel, what does he do? He begins to go through all of his sons, okay? And he begins to talk about, um, you know, Reuben, you're going to do this, and Joseph, you're going to do this. So he goes through this whole list of all of his boys and, and what they're going to do, right? You read that in Genesis 49. And he says, here's all the things that you're going to become. Now, obviously, God was giving him supernatural knowledge of, of what those guys would become. But I remember thinking about that. We talked about this in D group. We talked about how, how Jacob had a vision. He had a, he had a purpose. He had a, a goal for his boys and what they would accomplish and what they would be for Jesus, right? He wanted them to live up to their name. And so as I began to think about that and I challenged our D group, you know, I said, what, what is it that God is calling you to be? You know, I, I, was, I was telling my guys, you know, I, I remember writing as I, you know, journaling, I, I remember writing out, all right, well, what is it, what is it that Matt's going to be? God, what is it that you have in store for Matt? What is it that Matt would live up to his name? right? The name that you gave him. Who is it that he would become? You ever thought about that? When you read Genesis 49, did you think about that? Did you think about, well, God, what is it that you want me to become? God, what does my name mean? What does the future look like for me? You see, often because of our brokenness, we tend to live down towards ourselves instead of up towards Christ-likeness. We tend to live down to ourselves. You know, so many times people make mistakes, and what do they do? They identify themselves by that mistake. And they live their life based on that identity of that mistake, right? Anybody in here not made any mistakes? Raise your hand, anybody. We, we're going to have a counseling session. We're all going to line up, and you're going to give us great advice, right? Every one of us have made a mistake. What happens so oftentimes is that we embrace our brokenness, we embrace our brokenness. Most of you know we have a son who's 13 when he was little. He was uh, out playing in the yard. I've told this story before, but he was out playing in the yard, and uh, he told Melanie, my wife, to chase him. And so it, we lived in Virginia at the time, and he was tiny. And so he's out running through the yard, and um, it was early in the morning. I was out splitting some wood, and so uh, she takes off and starts running after him. Well, he stopped, and the grass was slick, and so Melanie slipped, and she landed on top of him, and uh, she uh, broke his foot. And so, you know, we've had lots of fun laughing about that now, um, but, you know, we messed with Melanie about it. You know, well, you broke Noah's foot when he was little, you know. There's an easier way to, you know, discipline kids. Uh, but nonetheless, <clears throat> so he got a cast, and he was really, really young, just not long learned to walk, and so his cast went above his knee about mid-thigh. And so Noah, you know, they didn't, you don't give crutches to a, a two-year-old. And so uh, Noah has this uh, cast. And uh, so he 
eventually learns to walk with it, right? And so he would, he would get his leg, and, and he would walk like a pirate, you know, like he had a stick leg or something. And so he would drag his knee around. And so, you know, we're feeling terrible. You know, he was trying to learn to walk, and so we thought he might end up walking like a cowboy. He'd been riding a horse, you know, the whole time, you know, bow-legged or something. So we weren't sure exactly how that was going to turn out. And uh, so they ended up, you know, after a little while he had the cast on, so he took the cast off. So guess what Noah did? He kept walking like a pirate. So he had no cast on his leg, but every time you'd see him, he was walking around, and we're like, bro, you can, you can bend your knee there. It's functional. You didn't break your knee. You broke your foot. Uh, but he was still just walked like that. So as I was thinking about the message and how we often embrace our brokenness, a lot of us get a cast, right? We break a foot. We make a mistake often. And... Uh, we mess up, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, go the wrong place. And what do we do? We carry it around. And we wear it like a badge. And oftentimes we, we parade and we act like that brokenness is still a part of our life. Weren't you forgiven? Right? Isn't that what salvation means? Isn't that what forgiveness is? In First John, your D group, you just read First John 1, 9. He says that if you confess your sins, what does it say? That Jesus is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to do what? And to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? Isn't that what the Bible says? But no, we're walking around like a pirate because we broke our foot a long time ago, Right? We're embracing our brokenness. We're not living up towards Christ's likeness. Who are you? Who are you? Who do you serve? You see, in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Paul gives this list in 9 and 10 of all of the things that the church at Corinth, you know, we spent a long time the last few years in, in Corinthians, and he, and he gave this list of here's all the sin that you, these people and these people and these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? There's this list, this litany of things. That if you do these things, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Things that you are known by. Right? If you continue in sin and you're known by that sin, Paul's writing 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. This is, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then what does he say in verse 11? Should be on your handout. He said, and such were some of you. You should write that on your living room wall. And such were some of you. Your brokenness does not define who you are. The gospel defines who you are. He says you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Praise the Lord. Right? Of some, of such, you were. You have been cleaned. You have been forgiven. If you're a believer here tonight, that is behind you, right? Listen, I know I made some mistakes. We can both agree we made, we would do things differently, but can we agree to move forward together? Maybe you need to have that conversation with God. That you would say, God, I made mistakes, and there's a lot of things I wish were different, but I want to move forward, and I don't want to be identified by those things because I know that you have forgiven me of those things. God, I've repented of those things, Right? But no, no, we want to drag them around. We want to walk like a pirate. We want to be identified by those things. What I want to encourage you tonight is stop living as who you were and live as who you were made to be. 
That is what Paul is telling Philemon here. He's saying, stop living in, in the scenario to where you and Onesimus had a disagreement and your slave ran away. He is now your brother. He has been changed. We are quick to declare our insufficiencies, but it is very rare for us to declare the realities of the holiness that we are capable of in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. And this time you should amen. We are quick to declare our insufficiencies, but it is rare for us to declare the realities of the holiness that we are capable of in Christ Jesus. Right? What does Jesus say? Be holy as I am holy. God has called you to a life of holiness. That's what the gospel does. It changes the way you see things because you see things through the lens of holiness. So here's the question. What defines you the most? Is it your failures or is it your faith? Your failures or your transformed nature? So here's the principle for us. If your love of Jesus is not the defining mark of your character, then your character is not defined by Jesus. If the love of Christ is not the defining mark of your character, then your character is not defined by Christ. What does he say in verse 10? He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. This is the only time in the letter that Paul actually uses Onesimus' name. See, Paul understood that Philemon most likely had a bad taste in his mouth about this situation. But he also saw the transformation that took place in Onesimus' life. And so Paul is encouraging Philemon to see him how the gospel changed the way Onesimus sees Philemon. Right? He's saying, hey, Onesimus is willing to forgive you. Onesimus is willing to come and have a conversation with you. Onesimus wants to be forgiven by you, and he's willing to come back to you. Remember, he ran away, but now he's willing to go back. Why is he willing to do that? Well, because the gospel changed the way that Onesimus saw Philemon. I'm also sure for Paul that it probably conjured up some old thoughts of when Paul came to Christ many years ago and he needed someone to vouch for him. Acts 9.26, uh, when he had come to Jerusalem, this is Paul, he attempted to join the disciples. Now this is Acts 9 where Paul gets saved, okay, road to Damascus. And so he comes and he's like, hey guys, um, I met the same Jesus that you guys met and I want to join your preaching team. Uh, who's going who's gonna to accept that, right? And he says, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So like, yeah, right. Yeah, of course you are. And so what happened? Well, good old Barnabas steps in, and he took Paul, and he brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Paul knows what it's like to have your past counted against you, but to have an advocate to help you move forward. Paul knows what that's like. And so what he's doing is he's advocating for Onesimus so that he can move forward just like Paul did. He's asking Philemon to forgive and to accept Onesimus. Now, this is not a sweep it under the rug request. He, Paul knew he had spent time with uh, Onesimus. He knew that Onesimus was different. He knew that he had changed. There had been repentance. Now, this is important. There was repentance in Onesimus' life, and he wanted to go back and make things right. 
The gospel had transformed him. And so what Paul is not doing is he is not justifying former actions. That's not what the message is about. He is not asking Philemon to accept the old Onesimus. That is not what he's asking him to do. He says in verse 11, Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed useful to you and to me. Now, if you were versed in Greek, uh, you would read it in Greek and you would see this play on words. Uh, slave, the slave, a slave's name uh, was commonly Onesimus. It was a very common slave name. And so uh, as he's writing this usefulness and useless, uh, what he's saying is, 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 again, it's a play on words here, but he's saying that Onesimus went from uselessness to usefulness. He went from being useless to useful. How do you do that? That's when you break free from your brokenness and you live in the reality of who you were made to be. That's how you become useful. Onesimus went from useless to useful. And here's what I wrote in my notes, and I didn't elaborate, so you just think about it. I wrote, some people have yet to make that transition. From useless to useful. Some people have yet to make that transition. You see, here's what D.L. Moody said. I think this is in your handout. He says, if I know my own heart today, I would rather die than live as I once did, a mere nominal Christian and not used by God in building up his kingdom. It seems a poor, empty life to live for the sake of self. Let us seek to be useful let us seek to be vessels, meet for the master's use, that God, the Holy Spirit, may shine fully through us. That ought to be our prayer. I didn't put any blanks in there because I want you to have the full quote. That should be our prayer, that God would make us useful, that we wouldn't be satisfied with nominal Christianity because the gospel changes how we see things. And lastly tonight, number two, the gospel changes why we do things. The gospel changes why we do things. In Paul's gospel-centric message uh, to Philemon, he was pointing to Jesus. Look how he starts in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in who? In Christ, to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for who? For Christ Jesus. You see, gospel-centered purpose becomes focused on living a life of worship. This is what Paul is saying here. He said, I'm bold enough to command you in Jesus what to do, but for love's sake, I appeal to you because I'm a prisoner of Jesus. He was trumpeting the fact that he was a doulos or a slave to Jesus, that he had surrendered his rights to Jesus, that he wanted to follow Jesus, and he was submitting to the lordship of Jesus. This was an act of worship. You see, Paul is declaring that he trusts in the sovereignty of God and boldness, and he is surrendering to the lordship of Jesus in his declaration as a prisoner. Is that, is that indicative of us? Would that be descriptive of us today that we would say that I am a prisoner for the Lord Jesus? That I've submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that whatever he says, that's what I'll do? That's what the gospel is. That, that's what's required in fellowship of Jesus Christ is to submit to the lordship of Jesus. 
If you confess with your mouth, Romans 10, 9, and believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls upon what? The name of the Lord will be saved. The name of the Lord. Paul is declaring lordship. You see, a gospel-saturated life means being so conscious of the greatness of the gospel that changing diapers or working in the yard is as much an act of worship as singing in church is. You see, your life is exemplary of worship. What does the world see of your worship? The worship is not relegated to 15 minutes on Sunday morning. Worship is your lifestyle. It's what you believe about who Jesus is that causes you to act the way that you act. You see, when the flag of Jesus is planted in the dirt of our daily lives, we become more conscious of how we spend our time, and we become more sensitive to God's activity. Listen, when when you plant the flag of Jesus in your life and you're gospel-centered, guess what you're going to do? You're going to think about how you spend your time. You're going to think about You know, I I could sleep late, but I'd rather spend time with Jesus and his word. You know, I could do something for me, but I'd rather serve someone else. Right? I'd rather be a part of what God's doing. Because then it makes you more sensitive to God's activity. You begin to see God moving. So if we were to have testimony time and I was to ask the question, hey, tell me the last time you saw God working in your life, what would you say? We ask our kids that all the time. Where did you see God working today? What was happening, when's the last time you saw God do something amazing? Right? Those are questions I ask myself. We ought to be aware of those things. When we're conscious of Jesus and we're focused on the gospel in our daily lives, we can answer those questions because he's working all around us. The question is, are we allowing him to work in us? Right? You see, every act then becomes an act of worship. From Onesimus traveling with the letter to the Colossians, the letter along with his presence to submit to Philemon and to ask for forgiveness became an act of worship. What is that? It is him submitting to God's will for his life. That is what worship is, that I'm submitting to what God has in store for me. And so this is a call tonight as we wrap up to do natural things spiritually. And to do spiritual things naturally. My hope and intention and prayer for us tonight is that we would begin to see the natural through spiritual eyes. And that spiritual things in our life would become very natural to us. That is what being centered on the gospel is. That was Paul's desire for Philemon. You see that our desire would be that there would not be a square inch of our lives that is not claimed by God. And as long as there's conflict in your life, as long as there's not resolved issues that, as long as you leave issues unresolved in your life, you are not going to allow God to claim that area of your life because you've not submitted that to the Lordship of Jesus. You see, tonight as we close, I want you to hear these last few things. You see, just like Onesimus, you and I have hijacked the plan and we've ran away from pursuing what God wants and pursued our own desires. Every one of us can relate to Onesimus. We got into 
a disagreement with our master. And we pursued our own desires. And we did what we wanted to do when some of us ran a long way away. And as Paul is imitating here, Jesus became our mediator to restore our broken relationship just as God desires for Onesimus to restore with his slave owner, Philemon, that you and I would restore to God the Father, our creator, our provider, and our owner. This call tonight, the call has always been, the call will always be as it is for Onesimus to come home. Tonight, if you're here and you say, I'm not gospel-centered, the good news is God is calling you home. He is saying to you, as he said to Onesimus through Paul, there is forgiveness available for you. That regardless of what's happened in the past, regardless of how far you think you've run, it may be over 1,500 miles, but there is still someone who is willing to forgive you. His name is Jesus. That we would put aside our preferences. Our challenge is that we would submit to the lordship of Jesus. And number one, be reconciled to him. And number two, be reconciled to our fellow brother and sister. That we would place the gospel at the front of our hearts and the front of our minds and that we would pursue the gospel at all cost. That is my prayer for you and that is certainly my prayer for me as we journey into the future of what God has in store for us, that we would be gospel focused. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the example of Paul and Philemon and Onesimus. God, thank you that the reality is each one of us have been in conflict with you, and certainly we've been in conflict with others. And God, you are a reconciling God. Lord, would you instruct our hearts? Lord, would you help us, first of all, to be reconciled to you? God, that it's evident and known and and unfortunately normal that we make mistakes, that we sin. Every one of us have sinned. God, that is a reality. So, Lord, help us not to sweep the sin under the rug, but that we would confess our sin to you, that we would seek forgiveness from you because you promise in such a loving way that you will forgive us, God, and that you would cleanse us. Help us, God, to repent. Help us to confess the reality that we've sinned. Help us to turn from that sin and to be reconciled with you. God, we pray that you would also, because of your reconciliation, you would help us to be reconciled to each other. God, that you would help us to focus on who you are, And God, that we would forgive as we have been so greatly forgiven by you. God, that we would not seek our own purposes. God, that we would not pursue our own desires, but through the common purpose and common bond of Jesus, that we would work together, that we would serve together, that we would love together for your glory as an act of worship. God, for some people, it's very hard to submit to your lordship. God, would you help us to do that? Would you be glorified through it? In Jesus' name, amen.